Have you ever wished that you could have a conversation with Jesus? Well, if you were just praying as Jay was leading us a moment ago, you were in conversation with Jesus. Maybe one of your questions when you hear about violence, one of the questions might be, why? <laughs> what would you ask Jesus if you had that opportunity? I admit that having a real conversation with Jesus is a bit of a challenge. But if you had that opportunity, if you were with him face to face, what would you ask him? And WWJS, what would Jesus say to you? And would his conversation, would his words to you be as startling and, and puzzling as his conversation was with a man named Nicodemus? Many of you know the name Nicodemus. He was the man, the, the teacher of Israel, who came to Jesus at night under the cover of darkness because he was looking for enlightenment. He came to Jesus because there were questions on his heart. He was in the dark, and he wanted enlightenment. He wanted truth. It's frightening to think how easily we can deceive ourselves or even not know what we don't know. Nicodemus was sort of in that boat. Nicodemus was one who, you know, last week I shared a quote with you from Billy Graham who said something like this, that uh, people have just enough, have been inoculated with just enough religion to keep them from catching the real thing. Well, Nicodemus had a lot of religion, and Jesus was just the thing the doctor ordered. You would think, and in the case of Nicodemus, I think it was true, that an encounter with Christ was just what he needed to get him on the right path. Our scripture this morning is in uh, uh, John chapter 3, so I invite you to turn there with me. John chapter 3, it's on page 1029 of the Pew Bible, if you're following along there. <clears throat> We're starting with verse 14. This is, by the way, the middle of that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, so we're picking it up halfway through, starting with verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for the fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what has been done has been done through God. This is God's Word. Well, on this bright, sunny day, you all have come into the light. So those who stayed home in bed under the covers must be the ones who want to stay in darkness. Not really, but... If you're curious about uh, the reference at the beginning of this scripture, uh, Moses lifting up the snake 
in the wilderness. It's a reference to um, Numbers chapter 29, starting with verse 4. It's the story of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, and at one point they were uh, being bitten by venomous snakes. And God told Moses to make a bronze snake, put it on a pole, and that anyone who looked to that snake would live. By the way, the reason that they were being bitten by snakes, as Moses uh, relates, is because they were grumbling and complaining. God does not like grumbling and complaining. You know, as we're working on that relational covenant, that behavioral covenant here at Zion, as we're moving into vitality, that might be one of the things that we add to the list. There will be no grumbling and complaining in this fellowship. Well, Jesus' point to Nicodemus is this, that as the Israelites looked to that bronze snake for healing and life, so we, so Nicodemus and we must look to Christ for healing and hope, for life, new, abundant, and eternal life. The Son of Man, that is Jesus, was lifted up. It's a reference, it's a foreshadowing of the cross, the crucifixion. And then John launches into those familiar and wonderful words, a.k.a. the gospel in a nutshell, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the antidote to the poison of sin. He's the bomb for the soul. He's the deliverer from death. God sent his Son into the world. He's the incarnation. He's the embodiment of love and life. He is the light of the world. Jesus is the bright morning star who has come into a sin-darkened world. He is still the answer. He brings healing and hope to a hurting and lost world, and Jesus is still the answer to this broken world. And oh, how we need him still. Forgiveness and new life are yours the moment that you look to him, trust in him, believe on him, receive him. I trust that you've done that. And if you haven't, today would be a good day. John acknowledges, however, that not all have and not all will believe. Listen again to his words in verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light. And he explains, they will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Left to ourselves, apart from the revelation of God or the sanctifying work of His Spirit, we will be left in the dark. We will find ourselves in darkness. The reason that we run from God and hide from each other is the fear of being exposed, vulnerable, or naked. We have a longing to be known. I think most of us do. We want to be known, and yet we also have this sense that the world is not safe. God is not safe. We don't want to be found out or held accountable, and so like rats in the cellar, we go scurrying when the light is turned on. Light has that effect of revealing and exposing. The city of Jamestown has been re, uh, replacing streetlights uh, recently, uh, maybe you've noticed that. I suspect it's because the old sodium vapor lights aren't as efficient as the new lights. I was crossing the Third Street Bridge several weeks ago, and I noticed at night, and I noticed the telltale signs of those piercing bright white LED lights. More recently, the lights in my neighborhood have been replaced. I'll probably get used to it, but boy, is it, is it bright. Maybe it's... Uh, 
Maybe it's uh, safer. Maybe it makes things more secure. But it is a stark, bright light. And another thing that I've noticed is the pattern of the light. It, it casts this um, narrow, long swath of light that, is, that distinguishes more than ever the light from the darkness, if you will. The Apostle John casts a similar pattern of light, hard, direct, and defining. And he does this in both his gospel and in his epistles. Jay pointed that out to me this week, and he was right. John is very dualistic. He contrasts light and darkness, goodness and evil, faith and unbelief. He pits them against each other as though there's no gray area in between. He's very black and white in his scenarios. In fact, just listen to these couple of verses from 1 John. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. If you sin, you are a child of the devil. Now, there are some Christians who believe that you can reach a point of not sinning. They're not easy people to live with. A dear brother who has since gone to the Lord asked me once if I was a sinner. And I said, I knew where he was coming from. And I said, my hope is in Christ. My identity is in Christ. But yes, I still sin. He shook his head. And he said, you know, you, he said, you know no sinner has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. He was reading John. Very black and white. In or out. Saved or lost. Sinner or saint. And he no longer saw himself as a sinner. I knew him well enough to say, would your wife agree with your analysis? He gruffed and he said, she doesn't understand. I said, oh, I think she does understand. And she loves you still, just like Jesus. I'm not comfortable with John's black and white world, and maybe I'm not supposed to be. I understand the need to, have, to make differentiations for recognizing what is sinful or evil or wrong in contrast to what is pure and lovely and good. On Friday, the Post-Journal reported the arrest of a man who has been exploiting children in our community, sex trafficking children. Clearly and unmistakably evil. It's an easy call. And I admit that it would be easier to make everything black and white because it would, be, it would not require... It would not require much thinking or analysis or even self-reflection. Children learn cognitively to recognize distinctions between black and white, right and wrong, and it's important to their development. But as one matures, you discover that life isn't so neatly divided. There are shades of gray. For those of us living here around the Great Lakes, we know that there's a lot of gray. Perhaps our world has become too gray. And so in times of crisis and challenge, like the times we're living in now, we tend to retreat to a black and white worldview because it's easier. We can neatly divide the world into right and wrong, good and evil, them and us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the battle line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man. When I sing Amazing Grace... How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I am under no illusion 
that that term wretch never applies to me. I knew a man once who came out of church on Sunday morning. The church had just concluded with the singing of Amazing Grace. And he announced to his wife and his friends who were standing there at the front door, he, he said, I so dislike that hymn. Now, Amazing Grace is one of the most well-known and well-loved hymns of, of, of the church. What's not to like? Well, his protest was the word wretch. He said to his friends and his wife, he said, I'm not a wretch, to which they all said, oh, yes, you are. Now, I would hope, I would hope that my life in Christ is transforming me enough that my closest friends wouldn't be so quick to acknowledge that I'm a wretch. But by the same token, I want to know the truth about myself, the whole truth, and the truth about God. I don't often go, go to the message, Eugene Peterson's translation of Scripture, but this is a particular passage that I think might be helpful. Listen again to the way that he translates this, verse 19. This is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God light and won't come near it, fearing a painful exposure. This is true not only of those who we might deem sinful or evil, but even those who believe themselves to be right or righteous, like Nicodemus. Put yourself for a moment in the shoes of Nicodemus. Be open for a moment to the possibility that you maybe aren't exactly where you're supposed to be or where you need to be. Many play this church game, and some play it really well. They are, in the words of Eugene Peterson, Addicted to denial and illusion. I find even among believers often an appalling lack of self-awareness. Our friends in recovery and AA get it more right than we do sometimes. Step four of the 12 steps. We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Step five. We admitted to ourselves, to God, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Step six. We were entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. Step seven. We humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Steps eight and nine are about making restitution, about making amends to those that we have wronged. And step ten is we continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. There's probably more honest confession and repentance in some AA meetings than there is in some churches. And the church is the weaker for it. If we aren't regularly examining ourselves honestly and fearlessly, it does not take long to develop blind spots, to drift off the path into gray areas. Perhaps John's black and white perspective, his either light or dark kind of perspective, can help us see things more clearly. I'm just asking this question. Might John be speaking in such black and white terms because he's being elementary? Talking to new or young believers or reminding long-term or mature believers to not drift into darkness? Friends, this is, this is why personal testimonies are so important and necessary in the church. They're powerful. Think about the testimonies that you've heard of people coming to faith, people who are new in the faith. 
Think how very black and white those accounts often are. I used to be that, but now I'm this. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was a sinner, but now I'm saved. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, he refers to dramatic testimonies of people in his day who once were, he, said, he gives several examples, people who had been sexually immoral in all manner of ways, idolaters, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanders, swindlers. Paul says, that's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. It all seems so black and white. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Truly, when I first came to Christ, when I, when I consciously committed my life to Christ, there was a dramatic change. It was as though a great weight was lifted off of me. I felt like I found home. I felt like I'd been found. I saw things more clearly. I saw things in way that, ways that I'd never seen them before. But it didn't take long into my journey to discover that while I was set free from the bondage of sin, I still struggled and failed to live and love as Jesus did. I'm aware how easy it is to stray, to be content in the gray. Or like that old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The difference for me, though, is that I'm not afraid of the light. And I know that the darkness is not where I will find life and joy and peace. But experience tells me that the world and faith isn't black and white. This gray matter tells me that there is gray matter between the extremes of the black and white. Thankfully, I'm not alone in that thought. In Romans 7, Paul reminds us that things aren't as neat and clean or black and white as we might like them to be or as even as John makes them out to be. Paul reminds us that saints sin, believers blow it, children of God sometimes are naughty. And we have a choice every time we fail or fall. We can hide in shadow and shame or we can walk in freedom and light. Being very vulnerable there in Romans 7, Paul acknowledges his own struggle with sin and the flesh. But then he, he steps into the light of God's love and he boldly declares, first verse of chapter 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or as Jesus declares in our scripture this morning, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And whoever believes in him shall not perish. Friends, God sees sin more as a sickness to be cured than as a problem to be punished. Knowing our patterns, knowing our propensities, God still pursued us in love, offering healing and hope. And like the bronze snake that was lifted up in the wilderness, Jesus was lifted up on the cross, not only to demonstrate God's love for us, but to bring us healing and life. Jesus was broken to make us whole. He was wounded for our healing. He died to give us life. He rose to give us resurrection life and power for godly living. We will be celebrating that in a few moments when we come to the table. As the line between 
As the line between light and dark, between black and white, shifts and oscillates, as it so often does in the world and even inside of us. The question is this, are you moving closer to the light or further from it? It does matter how and where and with whom you are walking, whether you walk in the light or in the darkness, it will reveal who you are and whose you are. Is your life, relationships, work, play, your passions and pursuits, are they taking you closer to Christ? And are they helping you become more like Christ? Or are they taking you away from the goal of your faith? I'm asking you this morning to be honest about your walk, to look at yourself, to examine the course, the trajectory of your life. Be honest with yourself. Be intentional about the course of your life. Let me close with this verse from Ephesians 5.8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Amen. Let's pray. God of light and love, remove from us darkness and self-deception and help us to live joyfully in the light of your presence. Send your Spirit to guide and to guard us until the day that we see you face to face. Amen.